Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and our special guest today is Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. And we're back to the book of Daniel and today looking at chapter 7. Alistair, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Thank you very much. Now, how do chapters 7 to 12 of Daniel relate to the first six chapters of the book? Well, the first thing I'll say is that chapter 7 belongs with earlier chapters of the book in a few ways. We've got a connection in a chiasm from chapter 2 to chapter 7, where chapter 2, with the um, dream of the four different parts of the statue or the image, correspond with the four creatures or the four beasts of this chapter. And then there's also the joining together of chapters 2 to 7 with the Aramaic section of the book. And so there's that natural union with these chapters. The other thing to notice is that chapters 7 to 12 are visions that occur at various points in time during Daniel's life that in chapter 7 we're going back in time, for instance, prior to the reign of Darius that we've had in chapter 6. Now, this is a fleshing out of some of the themes of the book concerning the Lord's power of the empires, the Lord's purpose in raising up and bringing down empires, and the exact sequence of the empires that will follow in the years that intervene between Daniel and the coming of the Messiah. So I think what we have here is a chapter that could be seen as almost like a seam in the book, a connection with the first seven chapters, particularly chapters two to seven, and then a connection with the chapters that follow. So we have a series of visions that follow after this, and this is the first. What actually happens in Daniel chapter 7, Alistair? So it's set within the reign of um, Belshazzar. It's presumably something that he experienced before the events of chapter 5. And it's a vision of the throne room of God. We have a few such visions in scripture. We have a number of images of the throne room within the book of Revelation. We also have a throne vision with the throne chariot in Ezekiel chapter 1. And this would be perhaps the third most famous of the throne visions. And there are a number of beasts arising out of the sea. These are weird, strange beasts, not like the beasts that we'd be used to, and they have symbolic properties to them. And he sees this succession of beasts he doesn't really understand it. And then later on in the chapter, the beasts are interpreted to him. Now, the, the climax of the chapter is the giving of the authority and power of all the kingdoms of the earth into the hands of the Son of Man who arrives into the scene of the throne, the throne room. And so that is the end of the reign of the, the dominion of the beasts and the coming of the dominion of the man. These beasts fascinate me. They're, they're full of symbolism, aren't they? I wonder, I wonder what the significance of the horns are here and all the horn imagery. Yes, we have a lot of horn imagery within both this chapter and the next chapter. And I think they can be used to symbolise various things. They can be symbolising kingdoms existing alongside each other or maybe even a succession of rulers. So you can think about the way in which numbers within this chapter can also correspond with numbers associated with the great image of chapter two. So you have 10 horns on the final beast, you have 10 toes on the final part of the statue. 
So it seems there are some correspondences to be drawn there. So it's likely that the way that we interpret the 10 toes will probably connect with the way that we interpret the 10 horns. Then we also have horns in the next chapter, the two horns, the great horn and the smaller horn. We have horns arising out of other horns at various points. And so they do seem to be quite significant. Of course, in the book of Revelation, we also have horns. So these are deeper significance. Um, might think about the connection of the horn with authority. It's a sign of the power of an animal. It's also something connected with ordination, the pouring on of oil from a horn. Um, David can talk about the lifting up of his horn, the lifting up of his power in the work of the Lord. So it seems that the horn carries a lot of those different connotations that we find within specific prophetic contexts like this, but then more broadly also in biblical symbolism in general. Well, come on and talk about the individual animals or creatures or beasts or whatever you want to call them in a minute. But what's the significance of the sea there in, in verse 3? Well, it seems to be in some ways a scene that reminds us of the original creation. So you've got the, the sea, the great deep, and then winds blowing over it. And then you have things being brought up from it. So it's a creation type scene, perhaps. We might also think about the way that the sea is especially connected with the Gentiles. So the people are connected with the land and then the Gentiles are connected with the sea. So that movement in the Old Testament from shepherds and other figures within the land to the New Testament and lots of sea activity, lots of fishing, going out to sea. Think about the cases where we do have stories of boats within the book of Genesis and also in the book of Jonah it is connected with a more cosmic, global, or Gentile-related um, event. So these are four Gentile beasts, presumably? Yes. Well, can we go through them? Who or what are the four beasts? Well, we're not left um, without some clues. First of all, we've seen the ways that these chapters are paired with each other in a chiastic structure. So chapter two is a good place to go to to find some clues as to the meaning of the different things here. And I think most people recognize that there is some sort of correspondence with the four parts of the image and the four beasts. So the sequence of the parts of the image and the sequence of the beasts seems to be corresponding. And then, then when you look at the beast more carefully, you begin to see common features between the beasts and parts of the, the statue. Now, as we go through them, we can see that they are connected with animals that often have are seen as predators. We see these images used elsewhere in the prophetic literature as images of great empires swooping down or coming as predators out of the, the forest to snatch off people. We can think about the way that the king is associated with the symbol of the lion, the king of the beasts. So, we have those sorts of realms of association. As we look at them in more detail, though, we can find ways to associate them with specific kingdoms. So we've already thought about the way that Nebuchadnezzar is described in ways that associate him with lions. So we've thought about the way that the kingdom of Babylon is like a lion's den in chapter six. Daniel's released from the lion's den the people of Israel will be released from the den of lions and returned by Cyrus to the land. And so that transition is one that is 
um, a transition from the rule of the lion. So when we see the first beast, we can already see some sort of association there that is already illuminated by things that we've seen. Now, if we think about the first beast a bit more closely, we can think about the certain features of it. It has eagle's wings. The eagle's wings associated with the lion should make us think, among other things, of the cherubim. So the cherubim, the four living creatures that we see in places like Ezekiel chapter one, the living creatures are the guardians of the throne of God. They surround it and they are his pets, as it were, um, surrounding his throne. Now, we have something similar here where the Lord has surrounded his people with these guardian beasts. And this first one has features that remind us, for instance, of the cherubim that we might see in um, the throne chariots in something like um, Solomon's temple. Or we might think about other cherubic imagery that we see in the book of Ezekiel. So you have the lion, the eagle, the ox and the man within Ezekiel chapter one. So the, this is cherubic imagery. Go back a few chapters. We've seen in chapter four the way that Nebuchadnezzar himself has cherubic features. So he's like a lion figure, and then he's reduced to eating grass like an ox. His hair grows out like eagle's feathers, and then the heart of a man is returned to him. So it seems that the figure of the lion here corresponds with Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. The fact that it is made to stand on two feet like a man, it's humanized, reminds us of Nebuchadnezzar's restoration and conversion. So we can think going further of the two-sided character of the bear as akin to the two-sided character of the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. So there's an alliance. It's raised up on one side. It's not an even alliance. And as we go through into chapter eight, we'll see another image of that with the two horns. The three ribs in the mouth could be a representation of earlier conquests. So we might think about Lydia, Babylon and Egypt, perhaps previous conquests that have been made or Phrygians, Cappadocians and Arabians, there are various suggestions. But this seems to be a prior succession of victories that it comes on the scene with. The leopard can think about the speed that the leopard moves. It has wings like a bird. It's moving swiftly over the surface of the earth, barely touching the earth. And we'll see that same sort of image in the next chapter. It has four heads. You might think about the way that the kingdom of Alexander divides into four different parts. It's divided into the kingdoms of, um, there's uh, the area of Egypt and Arabia and Judea with the Ptolemaic dynasty. And then we have the Seleucids and we have the areas of Greece and Macedonia and then Babylonia, the East and other parts that are all divided into these four kingdoms after the death of Alexander. So we can think about that as a representation of Hellenistic rule in its various guises. And then finally, there's the, the great beast, terrifying fourth beast, which it seems to me is the kingdom of Rome. And so that would correspond with the iron and the clay of the final part of the image in chapter two. And the 10 horns, presumably the, the 10 emperors, if you include Julius Caesar from, I think, is it Julius Caesar to Vespasian? Something like that. Yes, that's one common argument. Mm, um, mm. So some would argue at different parts of the kingdom. 
Others would argue different phases of the kingdom. It might be best just to think about it in terms of emperors. Who or what is the little, the little horn that comes out of the fourth beast, that comes out of Rome? Yes, um, the horn here seems to be different from the horn that arises in a similar sort of manner in the next chapter. The horn here you might think of as the final sort of demonic form that the kingdom takes. And here it can be very helpful to think about the book of Revelation as a reflection upon the meaning of the prophecies of Daniel, in part. So as we go through the book of Revelation, we can see the figure of the horn perhaps connected with the, the figure that is the sea beast in chapters 12 and 13. So that's connected with the underlying dragon. So there's the dragon and then the sea beast, and then the sea beast has its sort of mini-me within the land, which is the land beast. And each take on features of the other. And the monstrous sea beast and the dragon are a sort of composite of images that we have associated with the, the various beasts here. So we can think about the way that in Revelation chapter 13, if we think about the description of it, it should be quite reminiscent of the description of the animals here. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads. So you can think about the different heads. There are four heads for the leopard. Um, there are one head, there's one head for each of the other beasts. So that's seven altogether. 10 horns, we have 10 horns for the final beast, 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. So we've seen a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. We've got a bear in the second case. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. We have a lion's mouth in the first one. And to, the, to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound and its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So it seems that we've got this progression towards this monstrous form of the kingdoms. And it's also helpful to think about this as in light of what we see in chapter two, that this is a sort of unity. Although the beasts are treated separately here, there's something cumulative to them and successive. So first of all, they succeed one after another, but then they also have a sort of cumulative character. So they become progressively more monstrous. And then we have at the end, this monstrous, hybrid of the features of all the different beasts described in the Revelation. Yes, and so these are the kingdoms of the restoration period which are supposed to protect God's people and uh, protect Daniel and the saints and go bad, progressively go bad, as we've seen with Babylon, as we've seen with Persia and so on, as we see throughout, throughout the book. And then we get this section from verses 9 to 14 with the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man coming presumably ascending up into the, th the throne room. Now, who is the Ancient of Days and who is the Son of Man, Alistair? So we could maybe think about this most clearly in terms of the ways that Jesus uses this within his teaching. So he talks about himself as the Son of Man. He talks about the high priest seeing the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. This is the sort of imagery that picks up upon the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. So it seems to be an image of Christ sitting at the Father's right hand, being given authority over all of the kingdoms of the earth, and that progression is imaged here. So that coming to the throne is, I think, particularly the ascension of Christ. It's not Christ coming in, um, 
in judgment primarily, or the final judgment of all things, this is the event of the ascension. It's interesting, isn't it, because I was fascinated by uh, James Jordan's commentary where he uh, he thinks that the Ancient of Days is the Lord Jesus because of the description of, of the, the Ancient of Days, which is very similar to the one John uses in Revelation 1, and that the Son of Man is actually a kind of cumulative figure for the saints of God uh, coming into and receiving what, in effect, a sort of fifth kingdom. What's, what's, what are your thoughts on that? I found it intriguing. Well, certainly the Son of Man figure, and we can see similar things with the figure of the servant in the book of Isaiah, is a figure that on the one hand can represent an individual and be spoken of as an individual, but also be a composite of the whole people of God. And so when we talk about Christ, we can talk about Christ both in the sense of Christ, the individual, but then also as Christ, the, the body of Christ. And so, so it is also with Christ in First Corinthians chapter 12 represents not Christ so much as the head, but Christ as the whole body. So I think that's certainly something that we see in the later part of the chapter where the kingdom is given to the saints. The Ancient of Days imagery is taken up in places like Revelation chapter one, the way that Christ is described. I think when we're looking at these sorts of images, we need to be careful, I think, of, I'm, I'm not sure that we can separate those things quite so tidily because Christ does use the image of himself as the son of man coming on the clouds. Mm. Um, the imagery of Christ as the ancient of days is used in Revelation. And I think a lot of this should be read in light of the fact that of the unity of the Trinity, that the one who has seen the father has seen, who has seen the son has seen the father. And so the unity between father and son is seen in the fact that the son has these characteristics that we would associate with the father within that, that image. Mm. So both hand and or. Yes. <laughs> Fascinating. Now, what's the significance of the fact that the little horn tries to change the set times and decree? What's going on there? Yeah, so this seems to be a more dramatic rebellion. And um, we have the beasts that don't seem to be particularly tame, but this particular horn is an expression of that beast is rebellious to a greater degree. And we can maybe see this as the way in which in its final iteration, the Roman Empire becomes this extreme form of persecution. And in particularly in the figure of Nero, this attack directly upon the saints. Why does, well, first of all, before the last question, what's the meaning of the time, times, and half a time there in verse 25? Well, we have the same sort of numbers used in various forms. Um, so we have um, time, time, and half times is one plus two plus a half. So three and a half. That can be given in years. That can be in years. That can be given in months. So 42 months. Or in days, 1,260 days. You have each of those forms being used in Revelations chap Revelation chapter 12 and 13. So it seems that this is a significant body of time. It's a broken seven. So we've had a number of ways in which imagery of seven is used in scripture and particularly within the book of Daniel. It's very common. We can think about the way in which seven times 70 will be used for the weeks of years. We can think about the way in which Israel's time in captivity is a period of 70 years. And then this is a sort of broken seven, it's a half a week. And we'll see another half week 
in chapter nine. Yes, we'll come on in, in the next few podcasts to look at the symbolism of seven, which extrapolates itself out through into the book of Daniel in terms of jubilee years and significant seven and forms of seven. But why does the empire system lose its dominion there, Alistair, in verses 11 and 12? There is a divine judgment upon the, the empire. It's always important to remember we can have this idea, if we're not really thinking about it, that we have powers equal and opposite to God in conflict with him. But the beasts were only ever creations, and they may be rebellious and they may be willful, but ultimately the Lord is the one who is the creator and the Lord of all things, and he's going to establish his own authority over these beasts. And so we see in the establishment of the Son of Man his final purpose. Now, this is a great change in the heavens, we may not see that change immediately and directly upon the face of the earth, but there has been a dramatic change in the heavens and the form of authority there. We see another image of that in the book of Revelation, where you have the dragon and his angels that are in the heavens. They're removed as the child ascends to God's right hand. Alistair Roberts on Daniel chapter 7. Thank you so much, Alistair Roberts from the Theopolis Institute in the States. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Thank you so much, Alistair. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.